If you brought a Bible, you can go ahead and open it as well to the book of John. We'll be in John for our fall series this fall, and um, we are going to be looking at a Another conversation that Jesus has in chapter 4. Last week we looked at chapter 3. And if you're doing the, uh, the time with God study, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you know, just anxious to hear too from those that are how that's impacted your life spiritually. Uh, but one of the things I wondered if you, if you noticed and if you, if you didn't, that's fine. It's been something that's been more impressed upon me as I've studied this passage more and more is that chapter 3 and chapter 4 uh, really go together. Because what chapter 3 shows us, as we looked at last week, uh, with this conversation with a religious person, coupled with now this conversation that Jesus is going to have with somebody who is a, you know, for, for all practical purposes, an outsider to the Jewish faith, that it really creates this circle for who needs the grace of God. And what it shows us is that there's nobody outside of that circle the religious man to the outsider who, as we'll see, is living in a life of hiding. All of those people need the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that should be a comfort to us, wherever we find ourselves spiritually. Uh, even as you come and uh, worship here on Sunday morning, or if you are visiting, that regardless of, of, of what it is that you uh, perceive, and I hope what you perceive is grace, but whatever you perceive about Christianity, when we look at these two accounts, none of us, none of us are good enough. All of us fall short. And John is really showing us that through this conversation with Jesus, both in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And I just want to impress that upon you in your reading, but also as we look at chapter 4 this morning to see uh, as Jesus goes to this outsider, uh, to this person who, for all practical purposes, um, is not religious. We'll put it that way in one sense. Okay, with that, let's, let's um, give our attention to the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 1 to 26 as found in chapter 4 of John. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Chakar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was at the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, 
Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Verse 19 The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. And we pray now that you would do a miracle and by miracle that you would soften hardened hearts towards you. That such as a, a seed goes into good soil, that your word would, would penetrate the hard surfaces of our heart and enter in and produce a fruit that we would leave here changed people. Would you do this for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Well, as we looked at last week, and again, not answering texts up here, just setting my timer. As we looked at last week at that conversation with Nicodemus, a religious man, we asked the question, what does it mean to be born again? And what we learned was that we all need new hearts to see Jesus, to enter into his rest, uh, to receive the salvation that he has to offer us. But we also noticed that, that part of John's purpose is, is that when, when we do receive those eyes to see Jesus, to see the Son of God, we also see the love that the Father has for us in sending Jesus to us. Well, this morning I want to ask the question, what kind of worshipers does God desire? What kind of worshipers does God desire? And the answer is he desires worshipers, as you just heard, who worship in spirit and truth. Jesus says these are the type of worshipers that, that, that God is, that the Father is looking for, those who worship in spirit and truth. Leon Morris in his commentary says, it is the human spirit that Jesus means here. A man must worship not simply outwardly by being in the right place and taking up the right attitude, but in, the, but in his spirit, the combination spirit and truth points to the need for complete sincerity and complete reality in our approach to God. 
In other words, if, if Jesus is the reason we can now worship in spirit and truth, and he is, what sort of people will this make us? And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that it will make us into a known people. It'll make us into a known people. That is, it will create an honesty and a vulnerability within ourselves and within each other to be known as we were created to be known. For what is a life in the presence of God but being fully known? And I think sometimes we, we, we think about how great heaven will be because we think about maybe the, the peace that we'll have, the security we'll have, we'll, no more pain. But what the Bible says over and over about what that actually is as well is, is being in a place where you are fully known as God knows you. Where you are in a place where you no longer hide in the presence of the Father because he knows you and you know yourself. Where you are 100% understood. Where there is absolutely no more secrets. Does that sound good? Sounds terrifying to me. So how do we do it? How do we even get excited about that? I mean, Jesus says, this is the type of worshipers God is looking for. Those who will worship in spirit and truth. Those who will come fully more and more to be known as they are known. How do we desire that? And so I want us to see the answer to that as we look at this discourse in John and this isn't a dis, dis, uh, dis exhaustive reading of what it means to worship in spirit and truth, but I want us to see and get a window into how Jesus invites us to such levels of honesty by seeing first how Jesus comes to meet us where we are, by seeing what Jesus offers, and then lastly by seeing what Jesus calls us to. Okay, so let's take those in that order. The first one, we see how Jesus comes to meet us where we are as something that would begin to cause us to desire to worship in spirit and truth. If you've studied this passage before, you might know that there is a lot going on in these first seven verses that uh, look through, uh, as looked through in our modern day lenses, cultural lenses, wouldn't cause us much concern. It'd be easy to sort of breeze on through these, right? Uh, here's Jesus leaving a place called Judea, wherever that is. Uh, he needs to go to Galilee, which clearly is in the north. So he's got to pass through this small area of Samaria to get there. I get it. On his journey, he gets tired, sits down at a well to rest, asks this local for a drink of water. Let's keep moving. But if you were a present-day Jew reading this, you're you'd have immediate shock. And this is part of why John is giving us this much detail to begin this story. You would have shock at what John was saying and for several reasons. First, let's start with Samaria. It's no small thing that Jesus decides to, quote, pass through Samaria. Jews despise Samaritans and vice versa. I don't know if it's complete one-to-one, -one, but uh, it, it, it's sort of like the way that perhaps present-day Democrats and Republicans can tend to treat one another. And we get this in verse 9, right? But in fact, we, we learn later, and just not in this text, but we learn that some Jews made it a law that if you were to pass through Samaria on your way to Judea, you had to do certain ceremonial cleansing laws because you were now unclean. How would that make you feel if, uh, if, if, if 
in order to pass through your neighborhood, you were now considered unclean. And so you had to go do, you know, how would it feel if you lived there is what I mean, right? You can see how that effect would have on, what it would have on other people. Uh, Samaritans, on the other hand, they refused to worship in Jerusalem where Israel, Jews, said true worship was and disregarded the idea that true worship happened only there. Now, Samaritans did worship Yahweh. They, their primary focus was the first five books of the Bible. In fact, they didn't regard the Psalms and the prophets as part of God's word, and we'll get to that in a second. But conflicts arose over and over throughout the years with these two groups. Throw in some racial and ethnic slurs, and you have uh, what is a recipe for hate and disgust as to what a real Jew is supposed to be. But Jesus passes through. That's John's point. Jesus passes through. Doesn't go around. He goes through. Second, Jesus also does something interesting here that may not be something we pick up on, and that is he ignores the cultural taboo of rabbis, men really, but rabbis especially, talking with women. Never would a man, and certainly not a rabbi or teacher, engage in a conversation with a woman like this, and not because it wasn't polite to do so, but because what women thought in this day and age had no value. And this is supported in verse 27. We didn't read this, but when Jesus' disciples come back, they are what marveled at what he is doing. So along with the ethical, and, or the ethical and the moral barrier of dealing with Samaritans, Jesus disregards the cultural barrier of dealing with and engaging women. Outsiders, marginalized people in this culture and in this day. So from the start here, John is wanting to tell us something about Jesus and his ministry before the conversation actually begins with this woman at the well, as we call in this passage, and that is the extent in which Jesus goes to get you. That is, he comes to us where we are and he enters our story so that what we might know him Everything in this account is initiated by Jesus. And this is one of John's points. It is Jesus who what? Passes through. It is Jesus who comes to this well and sits down. It is Jesus who asks this woman for a drink. And the first thing that we learn about worshiping in spirit and in truth is seeing how Jesus has come to meet you where you are in order to pull people out of hiding. If you take just a second, if you think about the people in your life who have had an impact on you. I could be a teacher, a coach, maybe it was a youth director, pastor, parent, I don't know. If you think about who that might be for a second, the chances are, I'm, I'm betting, is that they came and met you where you were at that point in time in your life. I've talked with many of you all who grew up with the ministry of Young Life, a great ministry. Chances are a lot of those conversations happen because they came, what, to your high school and had lunch with you. We're big fans of the ministry of RUF because we believe part of our baptismal vows that the church should go with its people, and so we send campus ministers to the college campus because what, our people sometimes go to college. And so we said, we want to go where you are. 
That's part of the whole mission of it. Wouldn't it be in your dorm room? Wouldn't it be in your fraternity house doing Bible study? Because that's where you are. And when you go to where people are, the effect of that is disarming. It's saying, you're seeing me how I am, and that allows me to trust you. And it allows me the opportunity even to come out of hiding. This is the effect that, that, that it has for us to go to places where people are because this is exactly what happens when Jesus comes to where. This is an incarnational ministry. This woman has not invited Jesus, a Jew, to come to her Samaritan town and be with her. He has come on his own. He knows all about her, and this has not kept him from going to her, from having a conversation with her, for asking something of her, for engaging her, for crossing the taboos of the day because he cares about her. And the same is true for us this morning. We are happy to come here we were happy to probably dress up a little bit, come to this pretty building, right? And we're, and we're happy to come here as God's people and worship him, but having God follow us home this morning into our houses, into our private spaces and sit down, I don't know about that. Like being here is one thing, right? But him following me and coming to where I am, where I live, that is a completely different thing. But friends, that's what he wants. That's what he wants. Which means Jesus is the one who can take your story to, no matter how messy you think it is. Jesus is the one that you can be completely honest with because he is what? Not ashamed to come and meet you where you are, wherever that is. And whatever effect culturally that might have on him. With the kingdom of God now here, with the presence of Jesus, the boundaries of that kingdom are being redrawn by Jesus who, with, with who is in and who is out of this kingdom. And right now we are seeing Jesus go to a people who were considered out with little to no cultural value, but even more, he is going to a woman who is living a complete lie, as we'll see, and he knows it, and he is saying to her, you belong in my kingdom. You belong in my kingdom. And friends, that is that's good news for us this morning. Because he has said the same to us. He has come to be where we are. This is the first point of uh, being one who learns to worship in spirit and truth as Jesus is calling us to begins with seeing how he comes to meet us where we are. The second member of the Trinity, never forget this, right? It's not just a doctrine of incarnation, leaves his throne of glory to come and and. and Run around in the dirt here with us, let alone die on a cross. But he does it because he loves you. Second point, we'll see what Jesus offers. And what Jesus offers, as the text says, is living water. From verses 9 to 15, Jesus has a conversation with this woman about water. And as you notice, much like Nicodemus, and this is thematic with John, that the woman doesn't understand what he is talking about. Jesus says to her in verse 10, if you look at it, we're going to do a lot of just letting the text speak this morning. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. This woman is looking at Jesus. She's like, you came on this journey, and you forgot your bucket. Where's this water? How are you going to get it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never Never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not have to be thirsty again or have to come and draw water here. Again, much like being born again with Nicodemus in chapter 3, the woman misses Jesus' offer of living water. She's thinking of the physical component of water, She's thinking, if that's true, if I can have this living water, it will solve uh, a short-term problem in one sense for me today. That is, I won't have to come back to this well every day. But of course, Jesus is talking about spiritual things, not talking about physical things. And this is what he has come to offer. And we see this first in the contrast between Jacob's well and what Jesus is offering there in verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself. And Jesus is saying, yes, I am. Yes, I am. I am greater. Just as Jesus did back in chapter 2, if you recall, of course, this was Labor Day weekend, so um, a lot of people were out. Um, There was a contrast in chapter 2 with the wedding at Cana. And that contrast was between water and wine. And as you noted, uh, that we said that Jesus has come uh, to replace the old, which is the purification system of cleansing that was wrapped up in the Jewish laws given to the Jews in the Old Testament. And he has come to replace that with the wine of the gospel, the sweetness of the gospel of grace. As one commentator wrote, Jesus turns the water of Christlessness into the wine of the richness and fullness of eternal life in Christ, the water of the law into the wine of the gospel. This is chapter 2. Well, Here, a similar contrast is actually being made as well. The water of Jacob's well and what Jesus is offering in contrast to it. And one, Jacob's well, is sustenance for a day, as wells were, but also had with it the overtone of life. You had to have water to live, but it was sustenance for a day. But what Jesus is offering in contrast is life and salvation for eternity. What Jesus is saying is this life can't fill you up the way that you think it can. Just give give me this living water and I won't have to come back to this place. What is here can't solve the problems that you think you have, but really the bigger problems that we have spiritual. And Jesus is saying this can't fill you. This can't supply your need. You need living water I've always been drawn to this quote from tennis great Boris Becker. If you guys like tennis, Boris Becker was a, a, a professional tennis player back in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, he is still the youngest tennis player to win Wimbledon. Won it at age 17 in 1985 for you Trivial Pursuit fans. Hold on to that one. Um, but with this win at 17, right, this is not a, this is a common story, right? 
With that followed all money and fame and pleasure that one could have. At the end of it all, Becker had this to say, though, in an interview. He said, I had won Wimbledon Wimbledon twice by the end of his career. No small feat. Once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It is the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. See, Becker's story is, in one sense, all of our stories. Experientially, we think there is something around the next corner that that will fill us up, metaphorically speaking, that will satisfy, but it never does. It leaves us with no inner peace, no contentment in this world. But God, according to Jesus in this text, has given us a gift. And it's a free gift. The text says it is living water, which is the end then to all of our looking. That's what he is saying to this woman. And this is what Jesus is offering. There are a lot of interesting commentary. Uh, there's a lot of interesting commentary as what it, what living water here means, uh, specifically how we think about uh, how and really what Christ means when he talks about living water and the living water that he offers. There's uh, the Holy Spirit's involvement with this, of course. We practice taking Christ into us during communion, where we take the bread and the wine, and uh, the spiritual mystery of his involvement in this. It's a complex issue, but I don't want to make it complex this morning. I want to keep it simple. And so when we say, what is it, what is this living water? What is it that Christ offers? He offers himself. This is the point. It is him because it's only in him and through him that we have new life. As one scholar put it, Jesus is speaking of the new life when he refers to living water that he will give. A life connected with the activity of the Spirit. That is what Jesus offers. He offers himself. It's not hidden. It's not secret. There's no special knowledge that you have to have in order to get it. It is right in front of you as if you were sitting at a well looking at him yourself. With the water of Jacob's well promised in life for a day, Jesus offers a living water in himself that gives life for eternity. And the most incredible part about this that I don't want you to miss this morning, the most incredible part about this as we move to the next point, is it is offered, it is offered before we get honest about the messiness of our lives. And that's grace. That's grace. So we've seen how Jesus comes to meet us where we are. We've seen what Jesus offers us, which is living water, which is is himself. Lastly, we want to look at what Jesus calls us to. And he calls us to himself. He offers himself and he calls us to, her, to himself. And this is the pattern of Scripture in the Old Testament and even in, in the New, that God is always calling the people from something to something. For Israel, he was calling them out of Egypt, out of slavery, to be his people. I will be your God, you'll be my people. Right? Same thing today. You don't go to Christ and ask for forgiveness of sins, that God would call you out of that so that you go live the American life, which is go do whatever you want. Right, great, God has rescued me from this, hashtag blessed, now I'm ready to go and pursue my dreams. No, God calls us from something 
to something, and it's always to himself. And the same thing is true here, except here we could be a little more specific that he is calling this woman to himself. He's calling her from hiding into being known. He's calling her from darkness to light. So let's look at that as we turn to the last part of this dialogue. What we see in the rest of this account is that this woman has gone to other places. She has gone to other places for living water for various reasons. And it's Jesus who calls her out of that old story to give her a new story. First, Jesus' response to the woman's request to give her this water is to say, and I find this odd, this is again, this is the, the great revealer, right? This is, this is Jesus. In response to this water, he says, go call your husband and come here. In verse 17, the woman, woman answers, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right. You don't have one, you have five, right? At this point, I'm uncomfortable, right? He has just <laughs> exposed me here. Jesus takes dead aim at this woman's heart. And Jesus is, and gently, I might add, especially in contrast to the way that he deals with Nicodemus, the religious insider, by the way. Notice that. He's way harder on that person as somebody who should know the things that he's talking about. He's more gentle with this person who doesn't. But Jesus is calling her out of her old life, her life of unfaithfulness, her life of hiding and ultimately chaos, and he is calling her to experience something new, something lasting that is life in himself. Simply put, this woman, much like Nicodemus, but in a very different way, has gone to other places for living water in search of something that will satisfy, in search of something to make life work for her, in search of something to give her an identity, a meaning, fill in the blank. And Jesus is saying, you must come to me if you are going to find those things. Once Jesus takes that aim at her, the rest of this conversation turns to this topic of worship. Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And that hour will be when he is crucified, by the way. You, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. What's he saying here? Samaritans holding to only the first five books of the Bible, we might say, worship God imperfectly. That is, they rejected the prophets. And thus God's message to them, they rejected the Psalms, the historical books, and thus their knowledge of God was limited. This is what Jesus means when he says this. Therefore they worship what they did not know. Likewise, salvation is from the Jews is simply saying that salvation will what? Come from among them. Which is what the Old Testament speaks of. But what the Jews miss. They thought it was wrapped up in being Jewish themselves as opposed to the Christ coming into the world through the Jewish, Jewish people. It's a promise God has made since Abraham. But the hour is coming. Verse 23, Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here. That is, there is a new system of worship in place. Again, major theme for John. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. You don't have to go to Jerusalem, is what he's saying. At the same time, your life has to change. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She's pulling from Deuteronomy 18. Jesus concludes, I who speak to you am he. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. Worship is... I've said it many times, is the place where our hearts find rest. After revealing where her heart is looking for rest, where it is going to other places for this living water, Jesus calls her to himself. I am he. He calls her out of hiding and into a life of being known in the Spirit. We all, at times, right, and in various ways, are looking and have looked for living water in other places. We, we are very similar to this woman, and while I'm still getting to know you, let me go first here this morning and just share a few places where I have and continue to look, even at times, for living water outside of Jesus. Let's go with money. I love money. I don't know if you like money. I love it. I want to be self-sufficient and, and depend on no one for anything. That's what's in here. And I think money will get me there. Now look, money is not the living water. It's the means to the living water for me. What's the living water? It's self-sufficiency. That's where I think life is. That's where I think happiness is for me. But what does Jesus call me to? He calls me to dependence on him for everything. Let's take food. Some of you know I've got a big heart for McDonald's. It's part of my story. I love it. Um, I love food. I love McDonald's. I will numb myself with food in order to not deal with the stress in my life. And then I'll go exercise to self-atone. Some of you all know that story. But food here, which is a good thing God gives us, that's not the, that's not the living water. It's a means to the living water. What's the living water? It's peace. It's rest. It's the numbness I want. I want to feel. But what does Jesus call me to? He calls me to find that only in him. That's the living water. Education, knowledge. Perhaps a big one even in our denomination. We love theology. And we should. It's great. We need it. But all things education, right, we, we, we go to these things looking for them to, to do something for us that they can't do, this, to even sanctify us. Like, a lot of times I forget that I am, I am made right, not because I believe in Reformed theology, but because Jesus has died for me, which is Reformed theology. But you see the point. I look at my education and, and ask it to do things for me that it can't do. I, I, I worry way too much about my children's education and what it means for them. And these are good things to worry about. I'm not saying they're not. The point is, is what I'm looking for, and it's not education. That's not the living water. What, what, the, what the living water is, what this is taking me to, is security and comfort. That's what I want. I want to know that everything's going to be okay. It's control. And what Jesus tells me is that there is no security outside of what I provide. And amen to that. Because I will mess it up. And see, the reason I go, and I keep going, 
there's little difference between me and this woman as far as our hearts are concerned, no matter how well I dress it up. Still, Jesus still comes to her. He still comes to me, and he still comes to you. Which means then that as we kind of turn the corner in this point, what worshiping in spirit and truth is, is it's not acting like we don't go to other things for life. And I want that to be an ethos of this church. We don't have it all figured out. Right? We are beggars uh, looking for bread, and we have found bread, and hopefully we are people pointing to that bread, which is Jesus, as we'll see next week, where Jesus calls himself the bread of life. But it, it's not acting like we don't go to other things for a lie. Spirit and truth is actually being honest that we do at times, yet Jesus is gracious to forgive us over and over in spite of our unfaithfulness. That's worshiping in spirit and truth. It's not that Jesus calls us to be honest once in our lives. It's that he continues to call us to, to honesty by virtue of coming into the light that is him, which is why the church is always a repentant people. One of our heroes, Martin Luther, right? One of the reformers. What did he say? All of life is what? Repentance. When he opened the Reformation, as it were, by nailing the 95 theses to the Wittenberg Cathedral door, the very first thesis, the very first thesis, says this, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You can see why they wanted to kill him. Repentance requires honesty about who I am and what I'm looking for, that though God is changing me and changing us, and he is, my heart still thinks that there's something around the next corner that is better, that will satisfy, that will fill me up, that will make me happy. This is the type of honesty, though, that the Father wants, that Jesus is calling us to, that he's calling this woman, woman to. This is what he wants in a worshiper. It is to go deeper with ourselves where we'll, we'll find just how far that goes so that we will what? Truly know how much we need him. That's living water. It's not I get it for a little bit and I move on and I'm self-sustained on my own merit. I'm like, I got it together. I've been to Sunday school for eight weeks in a row. Man, no, you still need that water. Thanks for laughing at that. You still need that water. Again, spirit and truth is not acting like we don't go to other things in this life for it. It's becoming a people whose posture, uh, which is a posture of grace, knows that we can be honest about that, yet Jesus is gracious to forgive us over and over in spite of that. It's a lifetime and a life habit of letting Jesus dig in there and expose what our hearts are running to so that we might come again and again to the living water of the gospel. And it, friends, is a water that never runs dry, a living water that, water that says, I know who you are. I know your story. And I've come to call you out of darkness and into light, into a life of being honest and known. And though it's painful and terrifying to even think about that and often uncomfortable, it is a mercy of our God to do so. So we've seen how Jesus comes to meet us where we are. We've seen what Jesus offers, what he calls us to. So what does this mean for us this morning? Just as in last week, we saw that even on our best day, you still need to be born again. You still need Jesus to die for you. Here we see that our stories are never so bad. 
so as to work ourselves outside the grace of God. In other words, you are never so, so messy as it were, uh, so problematic that Jesus won't come to where you are and enter your story and offer you the living water your heart needs and is looking for, but maybe doesn't think that it deserves. And you're right. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But this is why it's grace. You never work yourself out of God's reach in Christ. The result of this is a lifestyle then and a culture of honesty and vulnerability, the type of worshipers that the Father is looking for because they live out of their need for Jesus. And friends, that is the church. That is the church. By contrast from last week, those who come in here acting as though they have it all together, that's not who the Father actually, surprise, surprise, is looking for according to Jesus. Because that actually says, I don't need Jesus for everything. To think you are somehow beyond the reach of God's grace, let me warn you this morning, only invites you to more hiding. It is a defense mechanism. It invites you to remain in the darkness, to allow shame and guilt to be your king. But if you are a believer in Christ, those days are over as Christians united to Jesus. Second, what the new life, the new creation, the resurrection promises tells us is that this worshiping then in spirit and truth, it happens now. So there's nothing we do that works ourselves outside of the grace of God, but at the same time, we're not waiting to get to heaven for us to begin uh, actually or practicing even actually worshiping in spirit and truth. This starts now, as you notice in the text, which means that being known starts now. It's the purpose of our confession of sin in this service. It's the purpose of our, our coming to the table every Sunday, that you have been redeemed and invited to dine with the creator and sustainer of this world. It is to say, and let this be uncomfortable, the jury is out on you. The jury's out on me, right? There is no hiding. And so now grace is your story. So let's live into that. Let's live into that. And this is grace, that God knows everything about us, yet we have his approval in Christ. I don't understand it. But that's his gospel, and nothing changes that. So come and worship in spirit and truth. Let Christ's presence not send you into hiding, but bring you into the truth of being known, for it is preparation today for what will be life in the presence of the Father for all eternity. But that starts now. So let me ask one question pertaining to this point of application. Is that happening in your life? Where? are the places in your life that you're allowing people in to be known. It's easy to come in here, shake a few hands, say hello, and head back out to your house or wherever you live and never meet or let anybody in. I think one of the graces of the church is that we are people who recognize we don't have it all together, yet we need each other. And that's part of the sanctifying process of becoming more like Christ. I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. How is Jesus using us together as his people to bring us out of this hiding to be known? Where is that happening in your life? Is that happening in your life? Such that you become more of a person where you know more and more of your sin, yet you are convinced more and more of the mercy and the grace of God. That the cross actually gets bigger for you. Are you a new creation in Christ? Absolutely. All of us are. 
who have faith in Jesus. Does he give you a new identity? Yes. Is true worship offered only through Jesus who has died, resurrected, ascended, and now intercedes for you to be theologically sound? Yes. Does this mean then that we are people who can return to darkness or hide? No. We are children of the light. We hold our broken stories next to the new story in Jesus as he calls us out of darkness to live as the new creation we are because of his resurrection. Therefore, worshiping in spirit and truth starts now. But as I said earlier, in the come full circle, and I'm way, way long, I imagine if you're like me, that's scary. That sounds terrible, actually. (laughs) Terrifying. Uh, To be known and to be honest, it's scary to even think about what that would look like if if I'm not practicing that in my life. To not have all the answers even. And in fact, like, it, it sometimes feels more normal still in this flesh to hide. And if that's you this morning, I want to leave you with the power that leads us into being known And this takes us to the cross where Jesus was honest and he was vulnerable with you. The one who is first and foremost inviting you to worship in spirit and truth this morning. The one who is inviting you to be known as you were created and are known is Jesus himself. The one who was what stripped bare on a cross for you. As many of you probably know, nakedness in scripture is synonymous for shame. But the cross is the only thing that has the power to change that. What is shame and rejection for Jesus as he is stripped is now full acceptance and love for you. Do you know that? Which means that at the cross, he is saying to you, there is nothing that I'm hiding from you. There's nothing that I'm keeping from you. I have given you myself. I have subjected myself to the most humiliating of deaths for you. I've gone first. It is the shame of the cross covered in his blood that makes you, friends, this very moment fully acceptable before the Father. This, friends, is the power that begins to lead us into the direction of being known. That, friends, is living water. And may we be a people who see that this living water that Christ offers, it frees us to be the people today who Christ has made us for all eternity, a known people, acceptable and lovely before the Father himself. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this living water that you have given us in Jesus Christ, your only son, how you have sent him to die in our place so that we could have acceptance, so that we could be made acceptable before you. And as a result, we can come out of hiding, we can come out of our dark stories and into the light of the gospel where life is truly found. I don't know exactly what that looks like for everybody in here, but I pray by your spirit that as a church that we would be encouraging to one another, we'd be, a, we'd be a people that you would use to walk with, with others, as scary as it might be, in those places of what that next step looks like of being known, of giving Jesus our stories and receiving in return his story of grace for us. Would you use that to transform us as your people 
not just for Wallace, but for College Park and the surrounding community. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, 